Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome to a very special episode of Until Saturday, the Athletics College Football Podcast. Uh, make sure that you subscribe to us if you haven't already. We're on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. Uh, and leave us a review, a rating, five stars, be nice. And if you've got some interesting things to say, you might show up in a mailbag podcast uh, at some point uh, very, very soon. For Sam Kahn Jr., I am David Ubbin. We got a very special episode today, and legitimately a very special episode. I, we'll call it a watch party, Sam. Uh, the Johnny Football documentary, Untold, part of the Netflix, um, I guess we'll call it a franchise that they've had. I like the Malice and the Palace doc. Cultural Ball fans probably watched the Manti Teo doc, which was very well done. Same director, Ryan Duffy, who you will hear from on this show as well. Um, Sam... I, I think this was a very interesting subject for a lot of people. There's another Florida football documentary of the Urban Meyer years coming up in a couple of weeks. But everybody watched Johnny Football's career play out. And I don't know how much we how much insight we got from Johnny um, until now. And Sam, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this um, episode is because you lived it. Um, were you... Were we ever at ESPN at the same time? Were you at ESPN when the Johnny Mania was taking over? I forget the time. Yeah, I th- think I came after you. I think I think you by you left and then I arrived not long after that. So I, I think don't that's think we ever that. officially crossed paths. Yeah. So my relationship with Johnny was so I was covering the Big Twelve. Uh, the, people forget that Mike Sherman was the coach who signed Johnny Mansell, and you. I have never heard a red shirt freshman have more hype. Like people, like it was just A and M fans though. They were just like, "Listen, I don't care what you say about A and M. This Johnny kid is unbelievable. He's like the best player we've ever seen. This guy's gonna set the world on fire." Mind you, the guy had not played a snap, and he wasn't that highly rated of a recruit. But the buzz was building, and then they left uh, for the SEC. Uh, Kevin Sumlin uh, took over. I stopped covering A and M, so I was kind of watching them from afar. But certainly, as a college football obsessed, uh, hard not to pay attention. Sam, when you think back on t- it's been ten years from now, which uh, Ryan Duffy actually talked about, he thinks that's like the perfect uh, time period to look back on some of these things. What 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 stands out to you about the Johnny Football era or, un- or unanswered questions you had that you were looking forward to in this doc? Yeah, certainly. What stands out to me is it was just a one of a kind experience, Johnny Manziel and Johnny Football, because he truly turned into a celebrity in a way that I don't think anyone ever anticipated. Like you mentioned like the hype. Yeah. <laughs> By time when they beat Alabama and then he won the Heisman trophy from November 10th, which I believe is the date in 2012 when they beat Alabama to about a month later when he won the Heisman, everything changed for him. And I think it all became a bit much for him, his family, those around him, even for AM, I think 
this thing got so big and messy that it was just difficult to wrap your arms around it. But what I remember is, like you, there was a little buzz about him coming out of Kerrville Tivy because he was a really dynamite high school football player. Mm-hmm. He, he wasn't a highly ranked recruit, mostly because of his size. He was short for a quarterback. But man, you turn on the highlight tapes and he is unbelievable to watch. And the, the, they, they started the JFF, Johnny F in football, on, started on Texags. I think it was on the message boards. And I think even before he took a snap, that nickname had already existed in the message board circle. So there was a little bit, like you said, in A&M circles buildup. But I, I started covering that Texas A&M team in 2012 because I covered Kevin Sumlin's last team at Houston in 2011, and then I covered his first team at Texas A&M in 2012. So it was all new to me. And I knew of Johnny from high school, but I had no idea that he was going to turn out to be that. I remember us having a conversation whether or not Jamel Showers would mm-hmm. be the starting quarterback uh, for Texas A&M in 2012. And, of course, Johnny won it and then took them to an 11-2 season, beat Alabama, won the Heisman, and the rest is history. It, it uh, The doc answered a lot of questions for me in terms of how things, Harry, things really got for him on a personal level, which I think we all feared based on, you know, the the news reports and his dad, you know, expressing concern for for the welfare of his son. Uh, and, and that stuff is certainly heartbreaking, but it was an entertaining documentary. I thought it was really well done overall. I thought that it told the story well. As someone who covered that time, I have a few nitpicks, which we'll get to later mm-hmm. uh, on, on the storytelling. But for the most part, I thought it did a pretty good job of capturing the mania that was Johnny football at that time and giving a little bit more of a layered view of Johnny himself and, and what he endured both through his career in college, the NFL, and, and after pro- football was over. Yeah, I think it did a good job of highlighting like how untraditional of a player he was. Uh, I think Mason Fine is not a good comparison for Johnny, but he was one of those guys you see a lot more in college, like maybe Colin Klein uh, going from college to the pros of like a guy who was like very productive, a very good player, but he lacked maybe the size or some of the measurables that people the next level want. That's what kept Johnny from being you know, a high four-star or a five-star recruit, despite all of the production. Uh, you know, the doc hits at, you know, 75 touchdowns in one year. I'm not even sure Derrick Henry did that. Uh, maybe he did. Um, but y- you certainly heard a lot of those things. And I remember going to a practice this saw- the spring before 2012, and you you could see, like, until you turn the lights on and you make it full contact – you don't really see it with Johnny. You know, it's the unorthodox mm. mechanics. Uh, you know, and you know, Jamil Showers throws a prettier ball. Well, throwing pretty balls doesn't really doesn't really do that much when you turn the lights on. And when you turn the lights on, there's a magic to it that I think the doc does a pretty good job of capturing. And you get a sense of, man, like there's all the things that uh that encapsulate what made this so such a magical two-year run. But I think, you know, Billy Lucci, uh, Texags, is he like the godfather of Texas A&M football? I don't know what to refer to Lucci as. I, you know, I think everybody who's covered the sport in the state of Texas knows Billy. You know, I've spent some time with Billy. He's he's a good dude. And he says in the doc that he's not sure that one singular player had a bigger impact on his school. It's probably Johnny and RG3, right? And I'd say Johnny definitely just because he got them to another level, even though they didn't win at the level that that's. Uh, you know, that Baylor did and, and capturing a, a conference championship. But 
Going into the SEC for the first year, it changes the tenor. You don't hear a lot of people questioning Can A&M hanging the SEC, despite all the failure that they've had. And I think a lot of that is because of Johnny. And, uh, you know, the, the, the doc also goes into the amount of money that he brought into the school. I think that what they said, the Heisman alone, produced like $37 million. The um, uh, donations up like $300 million. And I think it did a good job of highlighting uh, why, you know, I don't know that Johnny, I think he, he was kind of right at the breaking point where people started to see, hey, it's insane how much money is being made and Johnny is not benefiting off of any of this. Um, I think there was still, it was still a debate then. I think now most people roll their eyes at NCAA rules. But like turn of the 2010s, I think Nevin Shapiro was probably like the last case where people were still kind of demonizing people who were breaking NCAA rules until people started to open their eyes a bit. And bit. Actually, what if the NCAA is the actual villain here? I think people have started <laughs> to kind of realize that. And I think Manziel helped them uh, help them do that. Um, you know, I, I think, too, I wrote about this uh, news story uh, over the weekend that one of the things, you know, with the, with the downfall of Johnny on the back end was just the sort of unfulfilled nature of his of his life and, and a suicide attempt. And I also I asked Ryan Duffy, the director of, of the uh, of the doc, sort of how that came about and what that, uh, you know, how how you decide to include that, because that's something we hadn't heard before. We kind of heard his dad sort of allude to that. But I asked about it. You can hear from him uh, here. That came up and sometimes things come up in that setting that you're not sure they're going to want to revisit when all, all the lights are on, so to speak. And it doesn't seem like he even considered that. He was pretty much an open book once he was comfortable kind of talking about that and rehab and, and, and the various other various other things that he's been dealing with over, over the last few years. It was a no-brainer to have it in the film because I think it, it, it really kind of solidifies a little bit of like what we all probably perceived as a struggle a little bit, but like thing that, that I always got stuck on about Johnny is like, there was this idea out there that like Johnny chose partying over the NFL. That's like something you actually hear and read. Right. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it was that much of a choice. I think Johnny was dealing with something that was a little bit bigger than him and a little bit out of his control. And the idea that like he was just kind of having a great time going to parties with celebrities rather than reading a playbook is just like an overly simplified understanding of a pretty complex series of events that have to do with addiction and mental health that, you know, the suicide attempt, the rehabs, et cetera, are, are pretty solid evidence of that. I think it's it's an interesting discussion, Sam, of, and Johnny talks about this a lot in the doc, especially when he gets to the Browns, that he has the Heisman Trophy. He is the first-round pick. He has the giant, you know, contract. And he said that was, like, the emptiest he's ever felt. And I, I think there's a question of where is the line between, you know, later he's diagnosed with, with bipolar disorder, and where is the line between uh, just human nature? You know, I think what I think um, C.S. Lewis, uh, one of his famous quotes was, uh, you know, if I find myself uh, desiring things that this world can't satisfy, well, then I, you know, uh, the only explanation is that I've created for I've been created for another world or something along those lines. 
And I think you have to find something bigger than yourself, I think, in a lot of ways, um, if you want to find sort of meaning. And I think he could have won a bunch of Super Bowls, and I'm not sure he still would have ever felt differently. And certainly he came way short of that. Um, But even Tom Brady has said, you know, I think it was a 60 Minutes interview he did a while ago that, you know, he got to the mountaintop and saw, like, you know, is this sort of all there is? And so... John, he's just a fascinating picture in a lot of ways. And I think you, he explores, we explore that in the doc. I think that's sort of what I took away because I think I, I like a lot of people did have a perception of like, well, he just wanted to like have a good time and didn't love football. And I think it's more complicated than that. And I think that's one thing the doc does a good job of digging into and sort of understanding that it is sort of about the battle between, you know, Johnny Manziel and, and Johnny football. Yeah, I, 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 three things I'll hit on there. Uh, I think you summed it up pretty well. But number one, I, I appreciate Johnny's candor in this documentary, and that's one thing I think has always been a hallmark of him is when you do get Johnny. And granted, A and M did not give a lot of access to Johnny, especially his freshman year, because of Kevin Sumlin's no freshman policy. But one thing I always found over my time interacting with Johnny is that when you get to talk to him, he's pretty candid, and he pretty much tells you how he feels. And I always appreciated that about him because whenever you did get the chance to talk to him, you could get into a discussion that had some depth and some layers to it. And I and I really admired that about him. He he. Whenever you talk to him or spend time with him, he just feels like a normal guy. Uh, number two, we're talking about a guy, and it struck me when we talked about this in the documentary when they introduced him for that first press conference. Uh, Alan Cannon, the sports information director at Texas A and M as he introduces him to the press for that first press conference before the week before the Heisman Trophy, he says, Johnny's about to turn 20 on December 6th. And so when he won the Heisman and all this fame starts accumulating and coming his way, he was still 19 years old and turning 20. I can't imagine how hard that was to reckon with for him, especially living in a college town and college station, which is not large compared to like a, a major city, where in a major city, if you're like part of a pro sports franchise, or you're in Hollywood in LA, you can kind of blend in a little bit more because there's millions of people. College Station is not nearly as big. And so it it became a little bit of a fishbowl for him. And I think that celebrity and then the desire to chase all that came with celebrity became a little bit too much for him at that age. And you talk about the loving football and not loving football part. That was one of the quotes that hit me hardest in this was that when he talked about the end of his time with the Browns is that when he got everything he wanted, the Heisman Trophy, the fame, uh, getting to be a first round draft pick, when he finally got everything he wanted, he said that's the most empty he ever felt. And that really struck a chord with me because there's one thing about Johnny at A&M in the time that I covered him there, you always knew he loved football. He loved the game itself. And you could just see it in the way he played on Saturdays. He loved ball. And you hear Eric Barkhart, his agent, talk about it, that when he got to Cleveland, Johnny started calling him and saying, yeah, I don't know if I really love this. I'm not sure. You know, I'm not having fun anymore. And I think that's where it probably started all spiral and get too much for him is because if you don't have that thing that you love to hang on to that can drive you, motivate you, motivate you then, then what are you doing it all for? And I think that's where he got lost. And, and, and I go back to the story that Wright Thompson, uh, who's a senior writer at ESPN, I worked with for quite some time, and he came down to College Station uh, to work on a story on Johnny right before his sophomore season 
his last season at AM in 2013. And I remember reading the piece, and, and if you guys haven't, it, it's worth reading and looking up. Uh, I remember reading that and thinking to myself, wow, I cannot believe how much Johnny and his family and everybody around him has to reckon with the immense pressure that comes with celebrity. Because again, it is one thing to be a college football star. There's a whole other thing to be a celebrity on the way that he was where you're hanging out with Drake and LeBron and movie stars and rappers and all these people. And I, I just think it all became a little bit too much for him to handle at that time. And it, it played itself out throughout his start and end of his pro career. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I think part of it is, um, and I don't mean this as a as a criticism of Johnny necessarily, but uh, I don't also mean this as an endorsement of uh, of Netflix. But uh, Sam, did you watch the quarterback series recently? I started. I haven't. I have only got through the first episode, so but I've started I, I watching. It, it. I thought it was going to sort of be like pretty, like polished, airbrushed PR. It was a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. But I think one of the things that that show digs into quite a bit is like the process of being a quarterback every week in training your mind, training your body. And I think the best players love that process. It's the same thing in our business too. You see people come in the business. Oh, I love, I have a passion for sports. Okay. But like, you know, do you like prepping for interviews and actually interviewing people and like the, like the process of actually creating work more than like, Oh, there's an energy to game day. And I wonder how much of that was sort of, I don't want to say that's the reason for Johnny's downfall, but like there's something missing there. Like you love that, that jolt you see on Saturdays and the energy of the crowd and playmaking and being with your teammates and all those things. But, you know, and, and and we'll get into some, some more of this too, but Johnny, I don't think ever really loved the process of trying to be a great quarterback, you know? What I think Uncle Uncle Nate in the, <laughs> in the doc, I think said he's never seen him look in a playbook ever. Like that's <laughs> I can't tell you how listen, that's not normal, right? Yeah. Some guys yeah. have to learn film study, some guys have to learn, you know, playbooks and, and the mental side of the game. But like most of them figure it out at some point in college. But when Johnny, when you show up on the scene and you're sort of immediately this like uh, sensation and doing all this stuff to SEC teams, I get, I get why Johnny might be like, I don't need to do all that. I'm still killing it. You know, I think that. Yeah, and he, I think the circumstances of, that. of the Texas A&M, I think the circumstances of Texas A&M didn't help him a ton because, mm-hmm. and they talk about this in the doc. He came from a program at Kerrville Tivy that was very disciplined, and A&M it was a little bit looser in terms of the culture there, and. Mm-hmm. 
Cliff Kingsbury runs an offense that is a little bit wide open. It's a little more simplistic. It's heavy on reps. You know, it's the air raid style offense. You, you there, the concepts are, you're not going to have a playbook this thick. It's, it's going to be a lot, a handful of concepts repeated on multiple different ways in multiple different formations. And he, Cliff, I, I say in some ways, I think Cliff was the perfect coach for Johnny at, at Texas A&M because Cliff kind of was Johnny when he was at Texas Tech. Cliff was the big man on campus at Texas Tech, and he was dating Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson and all this. And he was, a, you know, not to the degree of celebrity that Johnny had, but he had a little bit of that elevated status when he was at Tech. And I think he, he admits it in the doc. He's like, hey, you know, Johnny may show up. You know, he was hungover after a night out, but we got to get him to walk through and uh, but he went out there and played on Saturday. And he told him, "You goes, you better f and play good. You know, if you're going to show up like that." And and, and he did. I think I think the the circumstances that allowed him to just do what he wanted from Sunday through Friday, and then show up and ball out on Saturday, didn't prepare him for the NFL, where you can't do that in the NFL. You have to treat it like a job. And and I don't think at A and M, it's clear just by Johnny's own admission. Uh, the way he handled it is I don't think it's certainly not in the second season didn't really treat it like a job at AM and uh but but to excel at the level that you're trying to and the professional you have to I think that's I, I'm not an NFL historian and maybe we got to get like our guy Mike Sando or something on the pod I don't think anybody can do that in the NFL and even the way it maybe it looks like Brett Favre did that at times like I don't think anybody can just like hey you know by the sheer force of my athleticism and talent, I'm just going to, like, dominate. I don't think anybody does that. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody yeah. in history has ever effectively yeah. done that for more than, like, three games or something. So <laughs> it's, you know, that's just not something that's that's done. Um, but uh, Johnny, uh, obviously uh, deserving of a documentary, a one of the most fascinating chapters of college football, and a lot of untapped territory because we haven't heard a lot from him he has kind of uh he's as by his own admission living a quieter life in scottsdale whatever that sort of looks like now um and not really doing anything and, and his sister in the dock uh mary says like he's not in a place to do anything uh, i think he's sort of strategically timed some of these announcements he's got a new bar opening up in northgate i'm um, doing a lot of different things uh now, like business wise, to try and capitalize off of like still a legend in Aggieland. That's never going to mm -hmm. change. They're going to uh, love him forever in Texas A and M. Yes, I don't think that. Like, I'm not sure what he could do to lose that. It, it, that will never happen. And Aggies, you know, are as passionate as they come. Uh, but let's let's get into the doc a little bit, Sam. Uh, when you look at in general the MVP of this doc. The guy that you're gonna you're gonna give the trophy to, non Johnny division. Who 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 was who was the most compelling talking head in this fig in this uh, in this doc? Eric Burkhart by a <laughs> mile, yes. by a country mile. Johnny's agent, Eric Burkhart, who also I believe was Cliff Kingsbury's agent, may still and be. Kyler's, he's basically the Air Raids agent, essentially. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So EB, as they call him crushed it because the Johnny's story is compelling on its own but it was about I want to say a 10 minute 5 or 10 minute stretch where they discussed the process of getting Johnny from his last game at A&M to the NFL combine and getting to draft day and that process where Burkhardt goes through how they 
kind of approach the social media approach, how Johnny approached his training. He drug tested him 25 times during that process. Uh, how to get Johnny to pass a drug test at the combine after sliding a little bit off the wagon uh, a week before the NFL combine. And the, the, the stories that Eric provided and, and the vivid nature in which he described them absolutely knocked it out of the park. I, I came away uh, really impressed. And I think I laughed the most when EB was on the screen. Yeah, I the 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 private pro day with the Browns. I can't believe some of those details didn't get out. But the Browns <laughs> might not have realized. I guess like I'm sure they knew Eric, but like when you see a guy's agent coming out there running routes for him, uh, <laughs> incredible, incredible. Uh, <laughs> I just, it was so good, man. I I, I have I, I'd like to get uh, Mike Pettin's thoughts. I'm sure uh, on, on the Oof. Browns side of things. Uh, so I, I think. He's the he's the runaway winner, uh, EB in my in my mind. Uh, but I gotta say, the first half, the best stories were from the one, the only Cliff Kingsbury. Usually, relatively terse, uh, a bit more loquacious, uh, if we if you will, uh, in sort of telling it. Okay, we all kind of knew it wasn't going uh, super smooth behind the scenes at A and M that they couldn't really get Johnny under control. And maybe that was sort of part of his magic. Uh, but Cliff providing some insight into, hey, yeah, like he's showing up like hungover, sweating to uh, to a walkthrough before we have a road trip to, what was it, the Mississippi, Mississippi State, State game or the Ole Miss game? Mississippi State. It was after the Scooby-Doo Halloween uh, picture surfaced. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so like just Cliff providing some context. And I thought it was very interesting uh, you know, Billy Lucci talking about after the arrest, which I, I remember that um, was that in the spring? I that was the in the middle of summer. Actually, it was I think it was right two days before I, t- I took the job at the A&M beat. I think it uh, <laughs> I think I started on July 2nd. I believe Johnny got arrested in the yeah. shirtless mugshot popped up on June 29th. So we didn't really know I have a context for it. But, you know, Cliff telling Billy Lucci, you know he's the guy, right? Like they knew, they mm-hmm. as much as there was talk about Jamil Showers and all this stuff, like obviously it was going to be Johnny and probably a good call. I think Cliff Kingsbury might know a thing or two about quarterback uh, development and assessment. It's just a little bit, just a thought. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I think he might have he might have seen a few uh, a few good ones come through. Uh, I'll certainly Uncle Nate, uh, strong the best the best. I'll I'll. I'll put this in the best moments as we get into the best moments of the show. Nate talking about how they came up with the idea that Johnny Manziel's family, like was independently wealthy, like from generations ago. <laughs> I didn't know that. Did you know that was a lie still? I, I, I just I, assumed I that was true. No, I did not know that was not true because it was written. And they, I think his father, Paul Manziel, the the Wright Thompson story that I referenced, Paul is quoted in the story as saying it's not Garth Brooks money, but it's a lot of money. Yeah. Like in terms of uh, the Texas oil fortune that that the family had and came from. Like so, he's on the record saying it. And in the doc, they show Johnny talking. I guess I assume with a reporter uh, talking about yeah, I have come from a family that's blessed and you know yeah, that was at media days and afford too, such yeah. things or whatever and. So, yeah, that because they they just came out and said it. 
like the family just came out and said those things. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's uh, probably us on, on us reporters probably to need to do some background check. I guess you they, they tell you if you're a journalist, if they tell you it's raining outside, you better go out. The first thing you do is go out and check. So it was uh, funny, I, though, yeah, because I did not know that that was a creation. When you were talking of about Nate. it. Uncle Nate was talking about, we came up with this brilliant idea, this brilliant plan. And I'm kind of rolling my eyes like, okay, let's hear it. And he's like, we just told people that he had a family fortune. I'm like, wait. So he did. <laughs> I was like, and in, re- in retrospect, it really is a brilliant strategy to sort yeah. of, the idea was that they were trying to, you know, Johnny talk about he's, you know, having a hundred grand in cash <clears throat> underneath his bed and talking about how they were doing these, these, uh, growing escalating what do we want to call these autograph sessions i guess but he got hooked up with the guy that did this for a lot of pro athletes he's like and it was pretty simple he's like you know they give you the key to the room there's a bunch of stuff on the bed you sign it all you shoot a picture and they text you the code to a safe in the room with a bunch of cash it's a pretty clean way of doing things i love it and i love it i think what (laughs) in in the college football hall of fame bad cheaters uh, which the newest inductee, Tennessee football. And I want to take some notes on how you, <laughs> on how you do this because <laughs> they weren't giving Johnny scheme. money in a McDonald's bag. I can promise you that. It's a great that. scheme. It's a great scheme. You know, there's no handoff. There's no photos. It was pretty well done. Um, but that that still like made my head explode because I'm like, so there's no oil money then. So there's no like because that was a very accepted fact because he put, a bunch of people talked about it and that. That might be the most interesting re- revelation of the entire sh- entire doc that they sort of like just made that up out of thin air, and that's why Johnny had big wads of cash everywhere he was going. And then his I grandpa, also love, his grandpa. I also love the grandpa. Yes, <laughs> and they show the, the only, grandpa. I love it. Laughing. I love it. I think that's this the only so time he appeared in the doc was when his dad, he, Johnny, was like, "Hey, grandpa." What if I give you like $100,000 in cash and you just write me a check so that I can start using like cards instead of just carrying cash around everywhere? <laughs> it's money laundering, baby. Got to love it. Uh, and they, they show the grandpa and the grandpa doesn't even say anything. They just show the grandpa and he's just <laughs> laughing. And I love it. It was so well done. Kudos Ryan Duffy for that one. Yeah. And like it really was a good scheme. And again, I think you can call it cheating and call it whatever you want. These are victimless, and I'm not even going to use the C word because they're not crimes. They're just like creative ways of getting around an Those, already unjust yeah. system. So that's like, what Uncle Nate said. He said he said yeah. we weren't breaking any laws. He goes, we were just not abiding by NCAA bylaws, and that's true. Yes, absolutely so, true. You could sign autographs for money, and guess what? If Johnny had been born ten years later. He would have been signing autographs without it being against the rules. You know, he would have been just, in a lot of commercials. Uh, he was ahead of his time. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Uh, what's your other best moments? Uh, there was a great one involving Burkhart, uh, Sam. Yeah, the best the best moment for me was the NFL Combine drug test story because uh-huh. he said that Johnny made it the entire two months or however long the period was that they declared for the draft and trained and did all this. And then he's like a week before he, I, he calls me and he's like, hey, EB, I messed up. It's like, how bad? And and he's like, we're That's, at this I, party I, I, and there's all these rappers <laughs> and these actresses. And I just don't know if I'm going to pass the drug test. And they're talking about making up a story possibly because they drug test on day two of the combine. So we're going to say we're going to get Johnny there for day one to go meet with everybody and do interviews. <laughs> and then we're going to tell either Paul Manziel or, or Michelle Manziel 
check yourself into the hospital with a heavy heart or something. And so that way Johnny can fly back home to be with his family and his parents and it doesn't look suspicious. And, and mom is, uh, is getting a little frustrated and getting a little saddened by this whole thing. And then they're in the hotel room, uh, chugging water and Pedialyte and <laughs> testing Johnny's urine to see whether or not he's going to make it and whether or not he's going to pass the drug test at the NFL combine. That, that whole sequence right there just, that that was the most entertaining part of the doc for me. I think I have a good story idea that I don't think we'd ever be able to do, but just talk to every pro sports agent about the time they picked up the phone and a client said, "Man, I messed up." Give me your five best. <laughs> give me your five best. Man, I messed up stories you get when you get a call from a client at one in the morning, <laughs> or so worse, bad. like eight thirty in the morning. Uh, I'd yeah. like to hear. I'd like to hear those. But I think it did highlight somewhat of like. It was hard for me to relate to that because I think you have all these things in front of you. You only have to hold it together. I think it does speak to, you know, there's not a lot of talk about in the in the film of whether or not Johnny is an alcoholic or whatever you want to call um, his propensity for like partying and doing all these things. You know, certainly there's the stint at rehab, which we'll talk a little bit about in a second. But I, I think the sort of i think it does hint at like how much of this was how difficult it was for him to keep things on the track um even when there was so much on the line because once you're drafted it really doesn't kind of matter what you do once you sign your contract like if you want to get to the second contract and have success on the field it certainly matters but you can lose a lot of money in that january to april mm-hmm. uh, mode it's tough to make money but you can lose a lot and uh, you know, there was probably some exaggeration. They said if you fail a drug test at the combine, you can go from first round to undrafted. I don't think that's accurate. I think in Lyle no. Collins's case, you can get named as a person of interest in a murder trial and then go from first round <laughs> to undrafted. But I have not seen a failed drug test or heard of a failed drug test going from a first round. I think you would have certainly fallen out of the first round. But at the end of the day, no, but we've seen it impact Laramie Tunsil. You know, we remember the bong mm-hmm. video coming out. It certainly impacted him. Yeah. It didn't. It, you'll lose money, but you're not going to be round, But he lost yeah. money. I remember Randy Moss a long time ago uh, ended up falling in the draft because of a drug test. And so, yeah, yeah it, can, it can certainly impact how much you make. And the thing was, is it was very tenuous for Johnny because, again, undersized quarterback, questions about commitment and whether or not he was going to be a real pro's pro. And so getting him into the first round, which they ultimately did, he got picked 22nd. I came away from this being really impressed with Eric Burkhardt and the strategy because Mm -hmm. he was on top of it. He knew what he was signing up for when he signed Johnny as a client. And the strategy to get him say, hey, stay off social media the next two months. All we're going to be posting is you sweating and working out. And I'm going to drug test you myself, so I'll make sure you're clean. And we're, you know, we're going to be very strategic about the ads that we do. And we're not going to be out here taking pictures all the time and being all over the place. Like Eric did a really terrific job of what he's supposed to do is accentuate the strengths of his client and, and give the appeal of what could be and kind of hold back or keep out of the view of, of the negatives of Johnny and, ended up it ended up working like you said he got him in the first round and so uh that that's ultimately the job and i was really impressed with uh, the way they did that we'll, we'll turn the page to the best quotes of this there were a lot of them <laughs> i think the one for me that sort of 
wasn't necessarily funny, but it was emblematic of all of this. I think there's a, I don't know if a lot of people think this, uh, you know, like I said, I don't, I like the NFL, but I don't pay a ton of attention, but I think there's this idea that he couldn't have gone to a worse franchise where you don't have a lot of veteran leadership. You have a culture of losing. You have all this stuff. Cleveland was not the best spot. We've seen Cleveland chew up and spit out a lot of quarterbacks um, for a lot of different reasons. But he's Johnny said it wouldn't have mattered where I was at or what team. At that point in my life, I was incapable of being a good NFL quarterback. And later on, he says, I was a frat boy and my frat was the football team. I think that's emblematic of just, I think it's interesting that Johnny recognizes this now. There's not a lot of blame passing in this. There's not saying, well, I was failed at this point. I was failed at this point. I think there are some fair questions about <clears throat> if A&M does things a little bit differently. Is there a wake up call or something that says, hey, you can't you can't do this stuff? I don't know. Um, but there's so much money at stake and you have a first year coach in Kevin someone and a lot of young coaches. Um, you know, he's not playing for Mac Brown, who's got a national championship on his resume at Texas. You're playing for a guy who's trying to prove himself um, and in the first year of the SEC and all these outside pressures. So I don't know what you necessarily do differently if you're A&M. I think it's an interesting question. That if A&M treats him a little differently or if he goes to another program, does that change things? But does that also is that offense and that system, are they also able to tap into the things that make him special? I think that was a unique, great pairing, that offense and that system and that program in a lot of ways that had a lot of on-field success and probably didn't help a lot of the off-field issues that, that Johnny dealt with and uh, you know, toward the end, I think his dad was saying, you know, we're still looking back on it. You know, was this great or was this not great? Or I can't remember the word that he uses. And he said, I think we're still still up for debate a little bit. But uh, Sam, what were the, the best quotes of the of the doc for you? I got a few. F your practice. I'm the best player in the country. That was special. <laughs> <laughs> Alan Iverson would be proud. JFF, I, I appreciated guy. that. Uh, Uncle Nate saying win or lose, we booze at A&M. We have a saying. Win or lose, we booze, and it was real true. Like that was <laughs> that was terrific. The 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 nineteen year old kid to have a hundred grand stash, hundred grand in cash stuff under your bed. That was awesome. That was good. My favorite <laughs> one was Billy Lucci, who, by the way, uh, crops to Billy Lucci for doing his interview in his own Tex Ag studio Tex-Ags to get Tex Ag's the Netflix exposure. Like, I see your hustle, Billy. Like, I respect it. Like, good job. Billy is nothing if not a businessman. This is no, 100% he is true. 100%. 100%. So props to him for that. But uh, Billy was telling the story about the night before the Browns private workout, how the receivers uh, didn't show up because they were uh, they were drinking and all that. And he says the night before the, the workout, he says, I miss about five calls from from Johnny. I go over there and it's a shit show. Bottles of 1942 everywhere. He's drinking straight out of the wine bottles. Like Billy, Billy has a way of telling stories if you've been around him and spent some time <laughs> with him. And Billy tells some terrific stories. So that was a personal favor for me. And the last one was not from anybody interviewed in the doc. It was a clip that they showed that I would guess is circa 1987 of Boomer Esiason, the former Cincinnati Bengals quarterback, who of course I think is now a radio uh, personality now. But there's a quote where he says, everybody wants to be a quarterback. Nobody's watching the nose tackle except the nose tackle's <laughs> wife and mother. Like, wow, we're getting nose tackle strays in the middle of the Johnny football doc from Boomer Esiason. So I think also, I, there was a lot of good ones, though. I will say one of the moments in the doc that I actually forgot about um, 
was when they announced that he won the Heisman and they cut to the shots in Kerrville and they cut to the shots in College Station. That got to me. I was kind of I was kind of feeling it in my chest a little mm-hmm. bit. I was it was truly a uh, why am I crying in the club type of moment <laughs> because it's like listen, <laughs> like that like in a lot of ways that's really what college football is about, man. You represent mm-hmm. so much uh more than yourself when you're on the field. Uh, you represent your hometown. You represent your university and all the alums that went there. The tie there is something special. It's one of the things that separates college sports from from pro sports. Um, there's just there's a pride there that just isn't there in pro sports, and you don't see that same type of thing. I mean, those kinds of scenes in America are usually reserved for like the World Cup. You know, you just mm-hmm. you don't see that as much. Uh, you know, sometimes like when the, uh, you see like NBA teams will host like watch parties and that's only for some franchises that will do like the Bucks had a pretty good one. Uh, what Jurassic Park with Toronto did. Um, but for an award that means so much and what that, I don't remember the voting that year. I don't think I had a Heisman vote that year. Um, but I don't think it was particularly close. I think people knew it was going to be Johnny and people to still mm-hmm. react that way. You know, Johnny represented Kerrville. He represented Aggieland and those people have so much pride. Um, and they care so much. It just highlighted it for me. It stuck out to me. I was like, this isn't even like new footage. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, it's just, you know, that type of thing. I think you saw the uh, the watch parties outside the stadium at, at Tennessee, you know, when they beat Alabama. Same type of thing. Like, it's the thing that makes sports and, and in a lot of ways college sports uh, really special. Uh, an interesting uh, moment also, Sam, we should talk about. Jeremy Fowler catches a stray in this. In this, uh, I I think you and I both know Jeremy a little bit. I haven't talked to him in a while, but I I knew him when he was at CBS uh, when he was covering college football. But Johnny talks about a rehab stay and sort of the celebrity, and he said he was walking outside and he sees a rental car drive by. But first of all, how would you know that's a rental car? I have a question about. And he, he said he looked in here. He's like he's like and Jeremy Fowler. I see I you see have a Jeremy big Fowler driving sticker on it. <laughs> I'm I'm very curious how this doc will be received by people. For me, so I got to we 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 got screeners from Netflix. I watched this while I was on vacation a couple weeks ago. I hooked you up as well, Sam, so we could talk Appreciate about that. it. Solid. Listen, it was, <laughs> but uh, like for me, the suicide attempt obviously was very newsworthy. But if there's another thing that's probably going to get churned through the ag- internet aggregation machine, people like to yell at reporters. And I, I think there's some, there's a lot of context missing from that that I don't really have answers for. Of like, where was this rehab? How private was this rehab? And how, you know, I think driving by a facility to get a sense of it uh, is not the. I think, I think Johnny sort of uh, villainized Jeremy a little bit, and maybe a way that it may be fair, may not be fair. I don't know, but it was interesting. I think as reporters, we've all done stuff or gone places that on paper may not look great, but it's just to gain a more totality and context in the picture. Um, so, uh, I, that'll be interesting to see how that, I'm just interested to see if there's other things out of this that, that people pull out. But I think that Jeremy Fowler moment will, will get people talking a little bit. Yeah, I definitely, I, I definitely, I definitely cringed a little bit when I saw that, but, and you're right as reporters, we've all been put in situations where we had to go find somebody. Um, mm-hmm. I will say, and, and we don't know the context. We don't know what was the context. Did he did, did he need to get a view of the place, or you know, was he actually looking for him, or what 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 was the situation? But I will say, 
it just made me cringe a bit because when you're talking about somebody in rehab, they're clearly struggling with something. And to me, we already knew he was in rehab, or or I, at least I would assume at the at the point that that Johnny spotted him that we knew he was in rehab. To me, that I I think this is the this is becomes part of the problem when you become a celebrity when it's not just a football player, but when you become a celebrity to the degree that Johnny is, I think the public just in general feels entitled to certain details of your life, and I don't know that it's necessarily. We need all of that, but it's just kind of accepted in the culture, I guess, is that, you know, we're going to find that out. It's the reason why TMZ exists and, you Mm -hmm. know, they have cameras in front of, you know, celebrities at any given moment. And I just personally didn't love it. But again, I don't have all the context, so it's kind of hard for me to judge in in totality. But, but, uh, you know, I certainly, I certainly understand those who will see it and say, hey, that's really not cool. Because I, I would say in the same circumstance, like, I wasn't covering Johnny at that time because I just cover college football. I don't cover the NFL. Yeah. But if I had, if if my editor had said, "Hey, you got to go find his rehab facility," we'd probably have an argument about it because I'm like, "Why? Mm-hmm. Like, like as long as we can confirm he's there, or we know, you know, through a family member or friend that he's there." I, I don't know what the point is of going to get him or going yeah, going to a, see him there. There's a lot of context I'd like to. I'd like to hear Jeremy's side of that personally. I don't Certainly, think it matters that much, absolutely. But I'm curious if people get mad about that. That's the one thing I think. I could see. Uh, Sam, let's talk nitpicks. And I got to start with my biggest one. There's a lot. Well, there's not that many voices in this doc. <clears throat> there's family members. Cliff, Eric Burkhart, Johnny, Uncle Nate. That's kind of it. Am I forgetting anybody? Uh, no Kevin, par- no Kevin Sumlin. Family. No Kevin yeah. Sumlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, no teammates. No teammates in college. No teammates in the that's my That's my nitpick. We didn't hear from a single teammate. In 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 Aggieland in Cleveland, and I, I, that's I don't know how the um, administrator whatever editorial uh, independence works with these untold docs. Um, you know, I know Manti Teo had some control over his, I believe, but I think that's sort of it, I would not call this a work of of PR necessarily. There's a lot of honesty here, and it's it's a very compelling watch. But I would have liked to have heard some other perspectives. I did ask Ryan Duffy about why he didn't include teammates, and he actually had a pretty interesting uh, defense of it. Uh, if we can listen to that clip, yeah, we were gonna, we were hoping to get Mike Evans. It, it became just a little bit of a schedule thing. He was down at um, down at the A and M Hall of Fame mm-hmm. uh, while we were there. Obviously, you can see him in a couple of the shots, and he and Johnny are still close. They had a remarkably close relationship. They still do to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, so Mike would have been great, but and, and we would have happily included him. Um, beyond that, it just kind of felt like, you know, this this wasn't as much. I think Johnny, the football player, is a little bit more of a well-known story. Um, I think for us, it was. It was a little bit more interesting to get some some texture into Johnny, the family member, Johnny, the brother, Johnny, the son, mm-hmm. and those relationships that carry through um, were a little bit more helpful in, in trying to understand him because Johnny's career was so short. He was at AM for a couple of years, he was at NFL for what, three. <laughs> I think those people knew him, obviously, and he maintains those relationships, but they knew him in Windows, his relationship with Paul and Michelle. Um, 
with the other folks in that doc staying through his life and, and will continue. So it just felt like they were in the limited amount of time and space we had a little bit of a better vehicle for us to really get to know the guy off the field. So that's a pretty good defense, I have to say, because there is a like we did hear a lot about Johnny football and less about Johnny Manziel. So I'll, I'll hear him out. But that stood out to me because I would have liked to have heard like uh, you have to check my timeline. But like, what is my, you know, I don't know about Miles Garrett, but like, what does Brian Hoyer think about this? Or what is <laughs> like, uh, you know, I don't know who's on the 2015 Browns, but like, what was your perception was- of this? And then the was it Josh McCown in that room at the time, I think, or yeah, one probably point he some was a teammate with Johnny. I don't know. I, I may I I my brain has a, has a very finite amount of information and 2015 Browns roster. It's not cracking it. It's not cracking it. <laughs> I have too much respect for myself to do that. <clears throat> but, you know, the Aggies like, you know, what does, you know, Malcolm Kennedy think about all this? And, and you know, he's still tight with Mike Evans and they did talk to Mike Evans, obviously about coming on and he's not included in the doc either all he does make a couple appearances but i'd be curious to hear what teammates thought about like does any part of you did any part of you like kind of resent that like clearly he was treated differently by the coaching staff like not everybody can come to practice uh, or come to a friday walkthrough hungover and you know <laughs> stumbling around and and still start on saturday so like i'd be curious but that's my biggest nitpick what other what other nitpicks you got when you look at this sam yeah, minor. And again, I covered uh, this era, so so I'm pretty close to it. So it's natural for there to be some things that are going to be glossed over for the casual fan. But I, they skipped over the Johnny's recruitment. Like when they discussed his recruitment, they skipped over the whole that he committed to Oregon. Uh, they talked about his fandom of Texas and growing mm-hmm. up a Texas Longhorns fan, which I think we know. But they, they kind of didn't really discuss like how underrated a recruit he was he was not swimming in offers he he ultimately committed to oregon first you know chip kelly i think he went up to a camp up there and and crushed it and chip kelly kind of fell in love and they offered him and he ended up committing to oregon uh but in the state of texas before a&m offered him he only had offers i believe from rice and baylor and those were the only fbs schools or division one schools that offered him in the state of texas and mm-hmm. even getting the offer from AM is a compelling story because Mike Sherman, as you mentioned, was the coach when Johnny signed there. Sherman preferred the bigger, taller, strong-arm quarterback, the more prototype that you would find in a pro-style offense, not Johnny, who was more like 5'11", runs around, awkward arm angles, awkward throwing motion, all that stuff. That He was not the traditional Sherman quarterback. And Tom Rossley, who was the quarterbacks coach at AM at the time, who I think coincidentally, I believe, was Favre's, uh, Brett Favre's quarterback coach at Green Bay at one point. Rossley was stood on the table for Johnny and convinced Mike Sherman to offer him. And eventually, after Johnny had committed to Oregon, I think it was a couple of months later, eventually Sherman and AM offered him and then they were able to win his commitment over. So I, I didn't like that they skipped totally over, but I also understand for the casual fan who doesn't follow college football, who doesn't follow recruiting, I, I can understand why for a general audience you would skip over that part. Uh, the other nitpick I had was that when they showed Johnny's last game in 2013, they showed it the Miss- Texas A&M play in Mississippi State at Kyle Field. That was not his last game. That was actually, <laughs> there was two more games left in the regular season and another bowl game that they ended up playing. Uh, the Mississippi State game was the last game in old Kyle Field before they uh, before they started doing the renovation of the stadium uh but 
and that was Johnny's last home game. So it w- it had a very farewell feel to it because it was the last time Johnny was going to play in Kyle Field and in front of the home fans. But they ended up playing LSU the next week. They lost. They went to Missouri the next week. They lost. And then, of course, the last game, his actual Duke. true last game, was the Chick-fil-A Bowl against Duke where they were down, I believe, three touchdowns or four touchdowns at halftime. And he led this amazing comeback uh, in the Chick-fil-A Bowl uh, to for them to go nine and four. So that was another nitpick. If I recall, because I was that at game a New was Year's great. Eve. I think I was at a New Year's Eve party with some A&M fans, actually, during that Chick-fil-A Bowl. And they were... Very happy, but also they got to the end. They were like, kind of thought we'd. I didn't think the Johnny Air would end in the Chick Chick Fil A bowl. But <laughs> no, <laughs> alas, I'll never forget. I'll never forget one of the A and M players. I can't remember which one, but one of the A and M players commented that that's the only place you can get Chick Fil A on a Sunday because they were there <laughs> on the bowl trip over the weekend on a Sunday and they were able to eat Chick Fil A sandwiches on a Sunday. I do stand behind my take. I've had this take for a decade. And that is that if A&M is in the Big 12 in 2012 and they don't have to play Florida week one uh, and they get into they go undefeated win the, and, and get to the uh, national championship game, they beat Alabama and win the whole shebang in 2012 or 2012. That's my take. Interesting. Interesting. So going to the SEC, while it had a lot of payoff, I think it cost them a national championship. That's my take. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> uh, that would have been something. Sam, we got to get to uh, some freezing cold takes that you identified. We'll <laughs> we'll gloss over these brief. Oh, also, the other thing, there's like a I don't know how long he was married for, but there's a marriage that just is never mentioned in the in the doc. Like Johnny oh, got mar- I forgot married about and that. divorced, and just like it never comes up. I, I, yeah, it seems I like forgot, a, I totally forgot. If I'm doing that. a if I'm doing a semi autobiographical thing, that seems like kind of a big deal. But you know, it is what it is. Uh, Mark Emmert makes a cameo and says uh, they're not employees, they're students. And he's asked if players will ever get paid at uh, the NCAA level. Not while I'm president. Well, wow. technically true. So there you go. <laughs> Man, I tell and, you, it was that one late, that one aged like milk. <laughs> yes. And then uh, we have Skip Bayless talking about uh, how many teams are going to regret passing on Johnny Manziel. Skip was Skip was all, all in. in on the Johnny all in on train. Johnny. It didn't, all a hundred percent in. It didn't how work much, out. How bad was it a day? Because you know he's a Cowboys guy. How yeah. bad was it when for him at that moment when you know Jerry Jones wanted to draft Johnny and they didn't? Like how how down bad was Skip that day? Tough night. <laughs> tough night for Ernestine. I got to tell you, tough night for Ernestine. <laughs> she had to hear it. She had to hear it. Uh, some other random little nit, little moments in there, Sam, that, that jumped out at you uh, that you had kind of forgotten about. Uh, well, first off, Cliff Kingsbury, who was a great interview, Cliff's aged a little bit. He's, you know, I, I met Cliff when he was, I think, in his early thirties. Uh, yeah, he was he was a, a offensive coordinator at Houston, and I think that Arizona Cardinals job is uh, took a toll on him a little bit. The, but the shirtless mugshot was a great. That was a great. I had forgotten about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah. It's been so long since I've seen it or d- discussed it. But seeing the, the Johnny shirtless mugshot was terrific. The other thing was summer of Johnny. That all the the Drake and the concerts and the front row seats at the NBA games that looked like a lot of fun. Like we <laughs> people criticized it in hand you know, hand wrung over it and got all up in arms about Johnny doing this and that buddy. 
That looked like a lot of fun, and I can promise you, if I was his age with that those resources, I would have done the same day. I would like to know, like, because he's not saving any money at that point, right? He's not looking to purchase real no. estate. I think he he knows the <laughs> NFL is coming, so I'd be very curious to know how much money came into his accounts during that <clears throat> uh, run of autograph signings. He said it started at the national championship game, the uh, Alabama uh, Notre Dame debacle that year he said and they were going back basically once a month to miami to sign autographs and get and get get paid for it i'd be curious i i feel like it was probably somewhere in the mid six digits but if you do the math that doesn't really add up for how much stuff they were doing and the fact that he was splitting it 80 20 (laughs) with uncle nate and i also didn't know that him and uncle nate had like basically broken up like right when they got to the nfl and they haven't spoken he said Mm -hmm. since like 2013 that i didn't know that that was pretty hard to believe yeah yeah i remember they had a falling out i think that that was that kind of became at least public public knowledge in AM circles I, I didn't know if they had still talked or not once i saw nate in the dock i assumed that maybe they had talked or reconciled yeah, but, but no. inter- interesting to hear johnny admit that they they hadn't um one thing i'll add to that is uh the 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 part about the money and how much money you made from the autograph signings one thing that I think a lot of us have said, and me included, is that if the NIL era existed when Johnny was around, like, man, how much money he would have made. And yeah. certainly, he would have made way more than he did from the autograph signings. But clearly, from the autograph signings, Johnny did okay. Johnny did all right financially with those autographs. I signings. think, like, if you look back at the last 20 years of college football, the amount of people that have transcended college football, it, him and Tebow... I think Reggie Bush probably straddled the line. Coaches aside, is there anyone else that even? I don't think Vince Young did it. He really only had the, we had the two seasons. I don't think Vince Young got to that level where just like your aunt's hairdresser who doesn't care about college football knows who that guy is. Right. Yeah. And like it's Johnny and Tebow, and I'm not sure in the last 20 years, like since the BCS era there's been anyone else. And I think that's how you get into that upper echelon of, of NIL money. Would eight digits have been unreasonable for Johnny? I don't think not nah, so. easily. They would have easily cleared that for Johnny. Well, and you had all the connections. So you could have cashed in on a Nike deal that off season. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have the amount of times that we have a Heisman trophy winner coming back. I mean, we have one this mm-hmm. year, but Caleb Williams is not a cultural phenomenon in the same way that Johnny was. And you combine Super fun to watch. Super like the bad boy person or persona is very real. You had an arrest, you know, before he's even showing up on the field. You have the, the Scooby-Doo, the party photos, all that stuff. So there's like a, a cool factor that people are attracted to. Uh, you know, the on-field is fun to watch at a big school in the biggest conference. You, you know, you deep-pocketed the, Texas A&M donors. Yeah, you close the season, what, they won their last, what, 10 games, 11 games along that line, and then I covered that Cotton Bowl. That was one of the, oh my goodness. Uh, I, that Destroyed was, I, Oklahoma. Was that Mike Stoops? Was that Mike Stoops or was that Brent Venables? I forget. I think that was Brent Can't Venables. Remember. I think it was Venables was still there. Not great. They were dropping eight against Johnny, and I think he <laughs> ran for like 200 yards. It was absurd. He had one play where... Somebody had gotten blocked and they were laying on the ground and he literally hurtled them at like the 20 yard line. (laughs) Like it was like a kid on a playground. But uh, Sam, before we go, I think it's worth mentioning that like this, that two year run 
outside of that, and and, they, and A&M, certainly not the talking space in the same way in 2020 because they got that, what, week two or week three just butt-kicking from Alabama. But that, that 2012 and 13 range is the sort of the peak for A&M in the last, I don't know, what, 30 years? Since, since 98. Since 98 when they won the conference in the Big 12. You wrote about this this offseason. A&M is one of the great mysteries in college sports because you you anybody who's close to this sport, you need passion, you need money, you need facilities, you need access to talent. A&M is not missing any, you need a great coach. A&M is not missing any of these things. And yet, they have never really been able to be the, the juggernaut. For people who maybe haven't been paying close attention or have wondered the same things, why don't we see more years where A&M is the story of college football? Yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating topic. And I, and I did this story earlier this summer. It's called Six Theories About College Football's Would-Be Elites, talking about what's holding Texas A&M back. Uh, and I think the one of the biggest things is lack of administrative stability. Uh, Texas A&M, you, when you look at the programs that are the most successful, like Alabama and Clemson and Oklahoma, one thing uh, that's a common thread through a lot of those programs is st- stability at the presidential level, stability at the athletic director level. And Texas A&M hasn't had that, not to the degrees that those elite programs have had. Georgia's had three presidents since 1998. A&M, since 2004, I think, has had six and is now going on its seventh president and that's not including the interim presidents uh and then they've had they've had three athletic directors ever since they've been in the sec in 2012 uh and that upheaval i think creates a little bit of a power vacuum and it it allows you know some other influence to get in there so that has been a little bit of an issue i think the head coaching moves not not necessarily i don't think it's ever been bad but like the dennis franchione hire clearly didn't work out but Kevin Sumlin did really, really well, and then they moved on from him. And then Jimbo Fisher had a good start for three years and then hasn't really been able to kind of catch it back. And they've they've just not – the timing on and, and the extensions, they've been very early to give extensions, which they gave them to Kevin Sumlin. They gave a huge one to Jimbo Fisher in 2021 uh, before he even signed that number one class. And so they put themselves in a difficult position with that. And then the other thing that's interesting is – Stephen McGee, who's a Texas A&M quarterback, had mentioned this to me that he he felt that A&M fans are not demanding enough of success. And when I say that is, is when they go the way he put it is there's an acceptance of nine and three that if we go nine and three, we had a great year. Whereas if you go nine and three at Alabama, buddy, people are going to lose their minds. And, and there's there. So there's I think there's a sense of because they haven't won at a high level consistently, there's an acceptance of that when they do, okay, we've made it, and then it's going to stay this way. Where getting a, having a great season, I think, is one thing, but maintaining it year over year over year, that is really what is the true test, and they've really struggled to kind of put that all together. And I also do think the SEC, the move to the SEC, while it brought a ton of financial benefits and benefits for Texas A&M football and their brand and the university, it also made their journey harder. Like they are in, they've been in the SEC West, which is probably the toughest conference to be a national title contender in because you got Alabama and LSU. So even if you're AM and you recruit a top five class, that top five class may be fourth best in the SEC because Alabama and Georgia and LSU may have signed a class better than you. And so I think there's a lot of different factors at play 
Uh, and, and some of it is just bad luck too. I think there's some of that too. But but I think all there's a little bit of everything in there that I think has added up and and held A and M back, even though they have all the things that you want, like you said, facilities, fan base, uh, state, uh, the the recruiting footprint, all of those things, access to players. They have all the other ingredients you need. But I think some of those things that I mentioned are, are keys why they haven't really gotten over the hump consistently. Which leads us to the future, Sam. <clears throat> Is Bobby Petrino going to be the the Renaissance bringer in Aggieland? I'm on board. I don't know if they're playoff bound, but I think he fixes things. Well, where do you stand on? Are we going to see this this streak end? Yeah, I think uh, I don't know. Cause I don't know how long-term Bobby's going to be there. Like, is this a one year or two year thing? Is he trying to get an sec head coaching job or a, a probably power depends five on how this coaching goes. Job? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but I will say for this season, I think A&M has a chance to bounce back and make some noise because if Jimbo Jimbo clearly is going to not be the primary play caller, Bobby Petrino has said as much. It's him calling the offense. And I even heard Max Johnson, the one of the quarterbacks mention. It's it's Bobby Petrino running the quarterback meetings. It's Bobby Petrino primarily, you know, handling stuff. And if that delegation of duty works out that way, and they just let Petrino do what he needs to do, Texas A&M has the offensive talent to be one of the better teams in the country. No question. Like the no the Connor Wegman, Evan Stewart, Moose Muhammad, Anaya Smith, Ruben Owens, you name it. They got their whole offensive line back. It's a real dudes everywhere situation. It really is. Like they they have one of the most talented receiving cores in the country, in my opinion. I don't think there's much question about that. And I think Connor Wegman's gonna be a star. I, I'm a believer in him as a quarterback. But but if if Petrino's able to do what he can do and has done in the past is design really good offenses that score a lot of points, and they can just make it an improvement defensively. They struggled against the run last year. Some of those guys will grow up, some of those young defensive linemen. I do think this has a chance to be a good team. The question is can all the other stuff sort itself out? They, they had some discipline issues last year. Can they avoid some of that? Can Jimbo get a little bit more of a handle on this locker room? Uh, if, if Can they be organized? Can they be disciplined? Can they do it week in and week out? Can they go stay like this on a straight line rather than going up and down uh, from week to week? I think that they need some consistency there. But, but Petrino, I certainly think, can make this team a factor in the SEC. I think that's the most interesting question I think about AM is if you're one of the heavy hitters in the NIL game, can it work? <clears throat> can you pull everything together? Because I've heard from a lot of coaches this offseason, and certainly they have some element of watching AM fail last year that they say it's not going to work, um, that you can bring talent in, but they're not as invested. And, and I don't know. I think time will tell. We haven't seen enough of it. But I think that there is a lot of people in the sport who don't believe in why are you going to give a guy, you know, a huge NIL deal, you know, you know, mid six digits to come if he doesn't really want to be there. You know, and, then, and I talked to one uh, coach who said, yeah, you give me 13 million dollars for a recruiting class, buddy, I'm using that to uh, fund my next like eight recruiting classes. <laughs> I'm not using that <laughs> on one class. Right. So I don't know. I, I think they're they're an interesting test case of. You know, you look at AM, Oregon, Tennessee, uh, Miami, I guess. We'll see, we'll see how Life Wallet sorts out. But like the people who are writing these big checks and have a lot of money in the locker room, can you win that way? We'll see. I don't think they, it's necessarily a money issue. I think it's a fit issue because 
it's not it's not the money you spend in my opinion it's what is the fit of that player does that fit player fit in your program from a personality standpoint well does do that they want to be there fit in your program from question. a scheme standpoint do they want to be there and and that is one thing that i think before that 22 class i thought jimbo fisher did a pretty solid job of finding guys who loved football and guy, finding guys who were fits for his program and i think that was part of the reason one of the reasons why he's been a successful recruiter i, I do think there was a level of obsession that Jimbo and that staff got to in that 2022 class of just trying to land, hey, we're going to land the number one class, we're going to land the number one class ever, you know, of all time. Mm -hmm. And I think that obsession got a little unhealthy, and I think they probably took some guys without regard to fit. Um, but if you if you deploy the money strategically, and if you if you are prioritize fit for your roster and your scheme, then yeah, I do think it, it can work. But you heard Anaya Smith talk about it at SEC Media Days that. Some of those guys that you know were attracted to come there because of that, and yeah, you you need to find the whys of why somebody wants to be there, and, and that's ultimately what's going to determine how successful your team is and how good of a chemistry you have in your locker room. It's going to be interesting to watch. I think ultimately we haven't seen enough of sample size to know what that means. I'm actually spoiler alert writing about this very issue <laughs> of what that what that looks like when you try to manage a locker room and uh and and what a player's value is and learning all of that but that's for another day sam uh thank you guys for joining us uh, on this watch party i would say there's a good chance we're gonna do something similar for the swamp kings florida documentary in the future um thank you guys for tuning in uh it's been fun i, I think we need more docs to fill the 30 for 30 hole in all of our lives we don't get the SMU death penalty, the U, um, the best that uh, never was best that never was. I'm forgetting a couple others. Um, there've been a lot of them and you know, uh, we haven't gotten any good, good dogs. Trojan war, awesome. the Trojan war with Texas and USC. Netflix really has been, Netflix has been picking up that, that mantle. And so hopefully we get to see a few more of those. The Manti Teo one was very compelling. Um, as was this one. And I think swamp Kings will be, will be similar. So thank you guys for tuning in again. Subscribe to us, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get podcasts. Leave us a review. Leave us a comment. You might hear us uh, in a in a uh, in a mailbag episode if you leave us a good comment question. So thank you guys for tuning in. Make sure to subscribe to us on YouTube as well. For Sam Khan, I'm David Ubbin. We'll see you guys again soon. And uh, I'm not going to say gig him to end the show, Sam. That feels <laughs> kind of wrong, but. Uh, I felt sufficiently gigged after watching this episode, so uh, <laughs> or watching this documentary. So I hope you did too. Uh, not just for A and M fans, uh, Johnny Football, uh, the one and only. Thanks, guys. We'll see you again soon.